Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to part two of my interview with Tora Rocha and Terry Smith, founders of the Pollinator Posse. In part one, we discussed Tora and Terry's background and what the Pollinator Posse does. We also got deep into the frightening collapse of the Western monarch butterfly population, including a lot of background on the monarch's life history and what people across the U.S. can do to support these charismatic creatures. So if you're interested in creative ways to engage the public to better take care of the land, or you want to learn more about monarch butterflies, make sure to go back and give that one a listen. Today, we get deeper into what homeowners and landowners can do to support their habitats, This is a critical and undervalued part of conservation efforts. Pollinators and insects in general are foundational to the health of our ecosystems, whether for the services, pollinating fruits and vegetables, or as a foundational food source for animals higher up the food chain. From an ecosystem perspective, all of our properties are connected. Consider how easily insects, birds, squirrels, and other animals travel from yard to yard. With that in mind, just one yard unknowingly contaminated with systemic pesticides can result in an outsized blast radius. I was surprised to learn from Tora and Terry that most plants purchased from the big box stores are pre-treated with systemic pesticides called neonicotinoids, and these have long-term devastating effects. Terry and Tora offer strategies on how to avoid these pesticides when you purchase new plants. They also discuss easy steps to add habitat to your yard, and the good news is much of the approach is just to be lazy. I think you'll be excited to hear what they have to say. So without further delay, back to the interview with Terry Smith and Tora Rocha of the Pollinator Posse. Maybe that's a good point to transition a little bit over to what we can do as homeowners and landowners to help out. You already mentioned a few good tips. If you happen, for example, to have the tropical milkweed cut them back on November 1st. Actually, I'm more specific about if you're going to raise tropical milkweed, you should not have one plant, first of all. You should have several and you should be pruning them up back hard multiple times in the year. That way you can leave one up for egg laying and prune another one down. So you have fresh leaves, especially if they're going to be sticking around all the time. That's when disease takes over. That's like all the year round populations are really high with disease because it's the same plants and the same butterflies in in a close location. So the transfer is much greater. You have to be willing to garden it. You can't just plop it in the ground if it's going to be tropical and expect it to do what it's supposed to do because it's not. It's not in its native space, so you need to garden it. I suggest people get three or four to five. Anytime you are doing habitat plantings, one plant isn't going to help. You need to have a cluster. So um, mass plantings work better. So if you have a lot of space, even for bees, mass plantings of plants are better. We do have a plant list on our website under resources. I did it to be homeowner friendly and designer friendly, where it's a list of plants that are pollinator plants. They're listed on a spreadsheet in the months that they bloom in the color that they bloom. So you can get 365 days of color really easy. 
And this is probably NorCal specific? It's California specific, not NorCal, yeah. Um, And Art Shapiro has great, if you look up Art Shapiro butterfly gardening, for if you're Northern California, he's got a great Sacramento gardening for butterflies recommendation list and um, the Sierra foothills. And I use that frequently, that list. But like buckwheats, I just tell people, plant buckwheats, California buckwheats, because 22 different butterflies use it as a host plant. And the bees, it's a great nectar source. It's one of those go-to plants. You'll see me talk about those kind of plants, like things that are, you know, they're used by many, many insects. Is a, If you only have a small space, focus on those. Don't get one of these very specific plants that only takes care of one butterfly, because you're going to hope that one butterfly comes through your yard. The whole tagging thing is not necessarily the answer too. If you only have 2000 monarchs in the overwintering site and California is so huge, the likelihood that that tag is gonna get photographed somewhere in California is really unlikely. That's why they're desperately trying to find different ways to know. And the rate of milkweed getting dug up and ripped out for development, this, that combination is so difficult. The more people planted in their houses, the more chance that those lonely monarchs are actually going to find it. That's another way to just just plant milkweed because bees love it too. It's a great nectar source for many things. So milkweed would apply to even listeners of this show that, you know, east of the Rockies. Do you have any other pointers for perhaps those regions of the country where they can go look to create more pollinator friendly? Yeah, monarch joint venture, but... Xerxes Society is nationwide. They have great plant lists. Anywhere in the country, they can get great information. But all of us will say the one main thing that is killing the insects the most are pesticides. So be smart consumers too. Don't eat GMOs. GMOs crops are the biggest threat to pollinators that there are. Um, And it's not the GMO crop itself. It's the fact that they create monoculture for miles and miles and miles, and they spray Roundup on these crops. So it wipes out anything else other than that crop. So it's literally a desert for miles and miles and miles. So if we don't buy them and we don't consume them, they'll stop growing them. The GMOs have been designed to be able to withstand Roundup, making it easy for the farmers to be able to just put the Roundup on indiscriminately. Right. Before, the farmers didn't have enough money to spray all the weeds on a farm. They would just spot spray in the crop, in between the rows of the crops. But the edges were all like giant hedgerows of weeds. And because unfortunately, most host plants for butterflies are weeds, like fennel and plantain. And the plants that the butterflies lay their, their eggs on are mostly weeds. So stinging nettle is is a host plant for the red admiral. Who plants stinging nettle on purpose? It's a clash of, you know, planting for humans instead of planting for the whole ecosystem. And that's why my main message is there. But pesticides are designed to wipe out insects. We have to get away from using it as the critical tool in our toolbox. We just have to get away from it. In general, you said also being smart consumers. And I keep, you know, echoing in my head, back to this tropical milkweed discussion, I went to a local nursery, not a big box store, and they had the milkweed in their native section. 
And of course, it turned out not to be native. So that was a lesson I took away from it is to, to be more prepared next time. But I, I know also there's a big problem with neonicotinoids in some of the plants that we purchase from certain nurseries. What is a neonicotinoid and why is it such a problem for insects? It is huge. It's it's really not good for us. There's finally studies saying that neonics are causing cancer in humans now too. But Xerces Society did a fabulous um, research a year ago where they tested every milkweed in that they, you know, not every single milkweed, but they ran up and down central California and California testing milkweeds for pesticides. And they found 67 different kinds of pesticides in all the milkweed, no matter where, if it was in a state park, in a federal park, in someone's backyard that worked for Xerxes. I mean, they found termiticides in there. They found just this constant barrage of pesticides it's just critical. And that's why you're seeing so many butterflies and pollinators being affected. That's why bees are dying. It's like, we're only, most people only focus on honeybees and that's a whole nother podcast right there because (laughs) honeybees are not the, it's not honeybees is the problem. It's our native bees being wiped out. And they've done studies in the Midwest where they use GMO crops and there are no, Wherever they're using GMO crops, there's no sign of native bees. The native bees have been wiped out. The honeybees like hamper along. They're all they're stressed and unhealthy, but the the native bees are getting completely wiped out because they're pre-treating the, the seeds now with neonicotinoids. And so that the little caterpillars won't eat the seedlings. Well, it's wiping out the native bees too. So it's it's just they're putting neonics in everything. And the reason neonics are bad is that they're systemic. They stay in the plant. Now they're proven that up to eight years and it gets in the soil. So when you buy that plant, this is the one that just makes me crazy. You go to a box store and you see bee and butterfly friendly plants. Well, these bee and butterfly plants have been treated with neonicotinoids. So you take that plant home trying to attract bees and butterflies but when the bees come and nectar on that plant, it's been sprayed with a systemic neonic, it's going to kill the bee and it has nicotine in it. So the bee gets addicted to that plant first and keeps coming back until it dies. And so they've totally bullshitted you and took your money when you're trying to do the right thing. And they're not telling people every time we've tried to get policy where you have to say that it's been sprayed. It has to have a tag on it that says it's been sprayed. It gets kicked out of court by the big ag. And it's like, now we're knowing that lots of big wholesale nurseries are using them because you only have to spray them once. Then they don't have to keep spraying it. And so now they're pre-spraying even before they have an infestation. And so that they don't have to worry about infestations. And that's what's the critical. So that's to find plants that aren't sprayed with neonicotinoids are being really, really difficult. Xerces is on it. They're working very hard. We're working with them. I'm trying to come up with a list of nurseries that do not spray. Like Annie's Annuals does not use neonicotinoids, Suncrest Nurseries. So we're trying to get it published. And that would be a huge thing if people really started making a difference on where they purchase the plants, especially this year where everybody's been gardening. 
we're trying to get that information out there. Like go to the local small nurseries, like master gardener nurseries or small nonprofits like Plowshares, Oaktown Natives, all these smaller nurseries. And if they're not spraying, they'll let you know. And then ask when you go to, you know, like if you're going to buy from your local ACE, they usually will know, but not all of them know where those plants came from. If that nursery, wholesale nursery sprayed it, but stick to the smaller nurseries that are making a difference and they're doing it the hard way. And it is hard. I mean, because an organic usually has to be sprayed every 14 days. So that's the difference in overhead for these nurseries. When you have acres and acres of plants, you know, they're going to try to do it the easy way. So I'm, we're working really hard trying to get neonics banned in the state because that will do it. Once the state bans it, nurseries can't use it. They'll be forced to do it. We got Oakland to ban them. There's been several cities now. Those politicians are actually helping us trying to get the state to ban it statewide and nationwide. Is this ban intended to be the application of the neonicotinoids or the sale of the plants selling. with it? Okay. Both, both. Because if we get the nurseries not to do it, but yet Home Depot has it on their shelf for you to take home, what's the difference? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't going to do the research themselves. So it needs to be at a state and governmental level. A good rule of thumb, if it's if it was made by Bayer, do not buy it. <laughs> because it's going to be a neonic. So that's the easiest way because people are like, well, which ones are neonics? If it's systemic, do not buy it. If it's systemic, it means you only need to apply it once. Do not buy it because it's going to affect all the other plants in your yard and then your soil is contaminated with them. So just that's the easiest rule of thumb for homeowners. Stick to neem oil or soaps, but know that those the organic pesticides, if you use it on your milkweed to kill your aphids, is going to kill the caterpillars because it's it's aimed at chewing insects, period. You know, know what you're doing, you know, know right. the spray. So best to just spray the aphids with water, just spray them off with water. Or let them be. Or let them be. Yeah. And we yeah. should clarify when we talk about Oakland banning them, that's on city property. Right. Um, the private gardening it doesn't it doesn't affect and i will say i mean i have built my own personal garden to be kind of a showcase of these practices i describe it as a habitat garden meaning it's uh, i have a mix of human edibles and pollinator and insect and bird edibles the each plant has a purpose i never use any sprays and and people are fooled you know one spray that people often use is bt which is considered organic and safe because it's a bacteria that affects caterpillars, but it's a bacteria that affects all caterpillars. So if you spray it on your cabbages and in your garden to get rid of caterpillars eating cabbages, any caterpillars in your garden could be affected. So there's really nothing, if you're out to kill things, that's going to work. The best thing is just to have really, really healthy soil. Your plants will manage and live with a little bit of chaos and damage. I've built my garden partly to be a showcase of this. It's the lushest garden in my neighborhood by far. And people are stunned to learn that it's low water and low maintenance and that there's nothing ever sprayed. You know, I use compost and worm case castings. I have planted very densely and we it's a busy place. There are birds and bugs in there all the time, but there's still more than enough for us of what we want. I think people get caught in a trap, a bit of a cycle of, 
you know, you start to apply the pesticides and then you feel like you need to continue to do it. And then at that very first application, everything is now out of balance and the natural predators and uh, some of the systematic compensations that would occur you know, are no longer going to happen. And one of the things I really enjoy, I don't use any pesticides and uh, you know, I let things go. And one thing I learned about pretty quickly in doing that is leaf mining insects and how they can make things look pretty ugly but they really didn't cause any damage. And so many gardeners out there will start applying pesticides at the first sign of a leaf miner uh, when it seems like it's, uh, granted, I'm a, a in of one study, but it turns out that it's not just me. Usually they won't cause that much damage to uh, to your food. I'm with you on that. That's No, by the time you cook the chard, no one's going to know. Terry tapped on it right then. It's about, you know, as a landscaper and a horticulturalist, it's really all about the soil. It starts with the soil. Like I tell everyone, the soil is like the oil in your car. If you don't change your oil and you don't keep your oil clean and your car is not going to run, it's the same with a garden. You know, that's a whole nether world going on down there. And so when you're using pesticides, especially like people use fungicides because they get powdery mildew. Well, Fungi is what does all the work in your soil. So you're using fungicides above, it's leaching in your soil. You're going to have a bacterial-based soil, and the bacteria is what weeds like. Fungi-based soil is what usually ornamentals and edibles like. So you're going to whack out your whole soil microorganisms, which, I mean, it's really just the balance of all of that. I call that the real Middle Earth because there is so much going on down there. It's crazy how much life is going on down there. I highly recommend people to go to Soil Food Web, have their soil tested. It's like a hundred and something dollars and they literally will tell you what fungi and bacteria you have and where you're, what you're lacking. But normally if you just make your own compost out of your own yard, you're gonna keep in that beneficial, um, you know, like we tell people don't rake your leaves it's the craziest thing. It's like, if you want a habitat garden, don't garden it. (laughs) Basically leave it alone. It's like, but like leaf raking is a prime example. It's a lot of insects use the dead leaves to pupate in and wait out the winter and then just rake them back under your shrubs. And then you can sprinkle a little compost and then it's just going to decompose and you're just keeping healthy soil. But if you rake all your leaves and you put it in your compost bin and take it away, you wiped out a whole generation of insects. The little hair streaks, they totally just use dead leaves um, of mallows and stuff. So it's, it can, everything, like I said, every single thing you do when you're landscaping affects the ecosystem. And we focus on pollinators, not just because that's all we want to care about. It's really that they're the bottom of the food chain. If you use pesticides to get rid of your caterpillars, you're wiping out songbirds in your neighborhood because 75% of what songbirds feed their fledglings is caterpillars. So if you have gypsy moths or you have, you know, oak moths or something, that's a good thing because you're going to have hella songbird food in the spring. It affects the whole chain. Or the one thing I can get people to change is that the way they think when they're gardening, that always think that you are a steward of your ecosystem and garden that way. It's definitely foundational to, as you said, you know, that they're at the bottom of the food chain. And one of the favorite things I like to observe in my backyard is a little Buick's Wren 
foraging on the insects that Mm -hmm. are in my garden. And uh, it's tons of fun just to watch this brave little wren who doesn't seem to care about me. They're just there in the moment looking for bugs to eat. Exactly. That's what Terry said. Like, leave the bugs. Then you'll get the little wrens. You'll get the finches or the titmouse, too. Every morning in the garden, at the botanical garden, I would go to the sages and they'd all be hanging upside down, either getting seed or insects off the sages in the morning before the public comes through. And it's so critical, that whole you got to leave the dead wood and stuff because that's where the native bees nest. It's like the, the less you maintain your garden, probably the better habitat it's going to be. There's lots of little things like that that can make a big difference. The other thing I find people come to my garden, which looks very lush and complete. There's not a blade of grass anywhere at this point. They say, oh, isn't this a lot of work? And literally the work in my garden, aside from blowing leaves off paths to keep it neat for humans, is I I do a big trim in the winter. And then during the summer, there's occasional pruning of fruit trees and things. But I mean, it's just going through the garden, snipping things. It's nothing major. It's nothing like the amount of time and energy it took to cut that lawn every week or two and try to keep it green. And I had this moment when I, I was looking for more places to plant fruit trees in my yard. And I, you know, I have a very relatively small urban lot. We're, we're not talking acreage here. And so I wanted to put in some more fruit trees. And I realized my front garden got the most sun. And so my front garden is now an orchard, which is underplanted with pollinator plants, with uh, mostly natives, but it, and it's gorgeous. And we get a lot of fruit, especially this year. This was a big fruit year. And I mean, I had this moment, like, can I do this? Because I live in a community that's relatively conservative and sort of has a way of looking. And I, no one's ever said anything other than this is gorgeous. How do you do this? And we get all this fruit, which I have, and I share with my neighbors and and preserve. And it's way prettier than the lawn ever was. One thing I'd like to recommend to people who maybe are feeling uh, a little bit of apprehension, you know, if people are feeling apprehension about uh, making a change like that is you can always start small. You can leave a little corner with leaves and, and leave the sticks behind over winter and uh, next you know, spring or in the autumn, add a couple of natives and uh, don't use your pesticides. You know, it's you, you can do it step by step. It doesn't have to be a, a huge transformative thing. And right. hopefully that makes it a little bit more attainable for those yeah. that, uh, that are on the fence. When I talk to garden clubs a lot, because, you know, you'll have these OCD gardeners. They just they love to garden. So they always want to be maintaining. They always want to be messing with the stuff. I say the back of your yard is where you should plant the habitat and then keep the area near your house to be the very manicured, organized garden so that you can do your gardening, but it doesn't really interfere with the habitat because most people don't plant or even use the areas near their fence lines. That's how I can gradually convert these. You know, it's really hard, especially in a botanical garden, fallen deers to teach them to quit deadheading you know, leave the seeds for the birds. And then what I learned as I learned, I mean, I didn't know about native bees, but native bees use the hollow stems of like fennel and, you know, of shrubs, of old dead wood and roses. 
they would lay their e- their eggs in there and the cocoons would overwinter. And if you go around cutting all the dead wood and you're not paying attention, a lot of the butterflies don't go to chrysalis on their host plant. They'll climb away and find a plant with bigger leaves. And um, so when you cut all your sage all the way back, I'm like, I had to train my gardeners. I'm like, ah, like there's milkweed right next door to that. Like, don't just go crazy with pruning down. And I said, you better look at every branch before you throw it away in the compost to see if there's a chrysalis. And sure enough, she found 18 chrysalis on one sage. It's about not over manicuring if you want a habitat garden. And it's going to be so much more rewarding when you let it go. Like lazy gardeners love me because of what I, my message, but um, when you get to go out in your garden and it's full of butterflies and bees and birds and salamanders, and you just can see all this wildlife, your garden is so much more rewarding than it was when you were out there over pruning everything. You know, the, this, the main message is about how you look at your landscaping and learn more about your native local communities and what lives there. You know, I, the main message I want people to think about is when you talk about living in your community and wanting to help your community, your community also includes the wildlife in your yard. It's not just people. Communities are the big picture, the whole ecosystem. And if we can get people to start thinking like that, like this whole mindfulness kind of push that's happening, which I love seeing, but let your you know mindfulness be about your yard too. Go out there and sit there and just be mindful of what's living in your yard and, and think about that too. So that's, if you can, if we can get the majority of public you know, like you said, to go up a couple rungs on that environmental ladder. And that's, that's a big one. Be mindful of how you, when you visit parks, when you're landscaping in your park, when you're have a sports field, like how is it, how is it connected to the, the community? And is it an asset to the community or is it a detriment, you know, and how you're using your, when you go hiking in the forests, you know, the benefits that forest is giving you, is huge. So please don't trash it. You know, those kind of that mindfulness of your surroundings is probably the key statement that I would like people to be left with. Absolutely. And you mentioned a lot of resources throughout the conversation today, and I'll make sure I link to all of those in the show notes, specifically to your work and the Posse's work. You mentioned the Facebook group. How can people find you? What are some of these links and and pointers that you can give them? Yeah, it's a Facebook group, not a page. And I think that gets confusing and you have to be admitted, but we admit everybody. We don't, we want people to be mindful of the other people. And we try to have all different kinds of opinions about subjects on there. So another one is our, our website, pollinatorposse.org. Terry and I are the ones who respond to those emails. So if you want to email either one of us, you can go through our website. That is what we do now is to answer questions and to help people get started. We don't mind being contacted. Xerces, the Xerces Society is another one. We're going to be doing hopefully a Monarch webinar. Normally we do these things called the Butterfly Summit at Annie's Annuals, which is one of my favorite nurseries because they are very bee friendly and they've worked with us over the years and they have a huge following 
So if we can get information out quickly, we're going to be doing that probably in late February, where we'll I'll gather, what I like to do is gather entomologists and like Xerces Society and a bunch of different um, knowledgeable people in one place. And so people can have access to us and ask questions. So that should be coming up pretty soon. And like I said, they can just contact us. We do talks um, for garden clubs. If some of us, somebody wants us to speak, we do festivals, garden clubs, master garden, any of those. We're going to start a YouTube channel. So we'll do how-to videos. So if you want to propagate milkweed or if you want to grow the Dutchman's pipe for the pipe vine swallowtail, we'll have videos on how you can propagate it or how you can What's the right way to rear butterflies if you want to rear them with your kids? Those kind of how-to videos. That's our next stage is to create a YouTube channel so they'll have free videos for people to watch. Well, you two seem to have endless energy. There's so much that you're doing all the time and so many plans to execute on. I'm very impressed. It's so, like I said, I learned why they call it retired, you know, because I've never worked. I mean, I, I sit Sometimes I'm like, how the heck did I do my full-time job and this? I have no idea. But I know that people people listen to me for some reason. I'm not sure why, but I feel like I was chosen to be the messenger. And so I take that seriously. In 2019, I won the Jefferson Award in the Bay Area for my work. And that humbled me to, like, I had no idea I would ever get that award. That's like, to me, that's like what people who start schools and hospitals get, you know? So I was kind of shocked, but I took it seriously. Like, okay, they are paying attention to what I'm doing. So this is my mission to get this information out there. We're already too late as far as I'm concerned. So there's no time to waste And this, you know, we have to start making a difference now. Okay. With that, thank you, Terry. Thank you, Tora, for being so generous with your time. And best of luck to you. I'm looking forward to following your work and keeping all of the listeners up to date with all your progress. No, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. This has been great. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.